Hey, I'm Michael, online pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church, and I'm excited to welcome you to our podcast. Now, after you listen to this episode, I hope you'll stick around for just a moment. I'll be sharing about some resources we have for you, as well as a few things going on at Silverdale right now that we would love for you to be a part of. Now, I really hope this podcast is just what you need today to help you in your relationship with Jesus. What happens when we die? Is there an afterlife? Do we wake up in the presence of God or do we experience nothing? Do we go to a realm of peace and joy or are we cast into oblivion? Is there an afterlife? Well, today we're going to try to answer those questions. And as we get started, I want you to see an interview of Howard Storm. Storm was a professor of art at Northern Kentucky University. He was a confirmed atheist. In fact, he took pleasure in making fun of Christians. But while he was on a trip to Paris, he became deathly ill. Listen to how he describes his condition. My small stomach perforated, which means that the uh, digestive juices, um, large part of that is hydrochloric acid, bacteria and all that good stuff, um, burst through the wall of my small stomach into my abdominal cavity. And um, the pain was um, way over the top, more than anything I'd ever experienced in my life, dropped me to the floor kicking and screaming. I was taken to the big city hospital in Paris, examined by two doctors there, told me that if I didn't have surgery within the hour, I would die. The pain, which had was so severe that it knocked me to the ground, thrashing and screaming and cussing and in terror, had only gotten much worse. I said goodbye to my wife, and I went unconscious. Well, as the doctors predicted, Howard Storm died. But he didn't experience the nothingness that atheists expect. Listen to what happened at the moment he went unconscious. And the next thing um, I knew, I was standing up next to the bed, and I felt better than I'd ever felt in my entire life. And I was... Um, so happy, so so ecstatically happy because I went from the worst pain I'd ever experienced in my life for hours and then all of a sudden felt great. I also noticed that my uh, senses were heightened. I could see, hear, taste, feel, touch much better than I'd ever before in my life. And I thought, that was, this is pretty amazing. And a group of people began calling me by name outside the room. And I went over to the doorway and I told them that I was sick. I needed a doctor. Um, I'm supposed to have surgery. And they said, we know all about you. We've been waiting for you a long time. It's time for you to go. So I assumed that they were hospital people to take me to the doctor. And I left the room and went out into the dark hallway and followed them on a very, very long journey into ever increasing darkness. As we walked, they became more rude and crude and abusive. And I realized that I made a huge mistake going with these people. And I told them when we were in abject darkness, I said, I'm not going with you any further. I'm going back, which was a bluff because I didn't know which way was back. I just want to get away from them. And when I did that, they began to fight with me first. Um, shoving and kicking and then punching and then um, biting and then tearing and gouging. And eventually um, I was all ripped up and laying on the ground of that place. 
I heard a voice say, pray to God. And I thought, I don't pray. I don't believe in God. And the voice said, pray to God. And I thought, um, I don't know how to pray. I couldn't pray if I wanted to. And the voice said, pray to God. And I tried to think back to uh, my childhood. And I remembered a couple phrases that I had learned as a child from the uh, Lord's Prayer in the 23rd Psalm. And when I said them, the people around me became very angry. And they were saying to me in extremely obscene language that there is no God, nobody can hear me, and that they were going to do much worse things to me if I didn't stop praying. But I also um, realized immediately that my prayers were so repugnant to them that they were backing away from me, backing away deeper into the darkness. So I kept making up stuff about God, very crude, stupid prayers, but all prayers good ultimately. And uh, they eventually left me alone. And in that time, I got to think about my life. And my conclusion was I had no idea why I had been born, why I had lived the life that I had, and what was the purpose of the meaning of life. Well, obviously, Howard Storm was revived. But this experience was so transformational that as soon as he recovered, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And then he resigned as a tenured professor from the university. He then went to seminary and became a pastor and has been living for Christ for the last two decades. And you go, okay, that's one man's experience, but did it really happen? Now, obviously, it radically changed his life. Was it real or was that just some kind of psychotic event that he experienced? So what actually happens when we die? What will we experience? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the afterlife. I mean, is there life after death? And if there is, what does it actually look like? And so what we're going to do is we're going to investigate that, that topic from the, you know, the area of science and history and philosophy, but most importantly, the Word of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, most of the research that I'm going to share with you today comes from this book right here, A Case for Heaven, written by Lee Strobel. It is a journalist who investigates the evidence of life after death. And I read this book this past fall, and I thought, wow, these are some incredible things about the afterlife that I want to share some of those things with you today. And so hopefully, when you came in, you got one of these bulletins, and here's your, your outline. And, and what I'd like for you to do is follow along, take notes as we're going to study this topic today. Most of the scriptures that we're going to talk about are right there in the outline. And what I want to do today is I want to give you four evidences for an afterlife, four things that will verify that there really is an afterlife. And so I want you to jot them down, and I want us to look at these evidences. The first is this. Jot this on your outline. First of all, humans have this desire to live on. Humans have this desire that they want to live on after they die or, or make this life last as long as they possibly can. I mean, the fact is, is that 83% of Americans believe in an afterlife, 96% of Christians believe that there's a heaven. Interestingly, 26% of agnostics believe that there is a heaven as well. The Bible says God's put that eternity in our heart. Look at it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says this, God has planted eternity in the hearts of men. See, God has put this internal desire within us to live on, Right? Now, the way that we try to live on primarily is not dying, right? Okay, we try to avoid death at all costs. And what we often try to do is we just don't even want to talk about death. Let's just avoid the topic. 
I mean, almost like there's this unspoken rule that when, when we go to the funeral home, we visit somebody, and then we leave, and we go, you know, it's pretty sad about Uncle Bob. Glad it ain't going to happen to me. Well, you know what? It is going to happen to you. It, it, it doesn't matter, you know. You may exercise. You may eat whole foods. You may gain a few more years, but guess what? You're still going to die. Death is 100%. I know that's not very encouraging. Welcome to Silverdale Baptist. You're going to die. But it's true, okay? But we try to avoid it, don't we? There were these three friends who were visiting one of their, um, you know, mutual friend who had passed away at the funeral home. And as they were in the receiving line, they, they start talking. What do you want people to say about you whenever you die? And one said, you know, I hope that they say that I was a good man and, um, you know, I worked hard. Another person said, you know, I hope that they will say that I'm a, a good family man, a good dad, a good, good husband. And then the other guy said, well, I hope that whenever they look in the casket, somebody's going to say, hey, he's moving. He's still alive. <laughs> well, they're not going to say that, okay? We are all going to die. And so well, how do we try to live on? Well, one primary way that we as tr humans try to live on is we try to leave a legacy, Right? That after we're gone, you know, we have this legacy. Maybe we will do some great thing. Maybe we'll discover something scientifically. We'll live a great life. We'll make an impact in some way. And maybe they'll, they'll name a road after us. Or maybe we'll write a book. Or maybe they'll build a monument for us, right? Did you know my family has a, name, has a road named after us? It's Walliser Road right there in Florida, Right? And, and, you know, we think, okay, if we, we can accomplish certain things, maybe they'll the name a building after us or the name a stadium after us. But we know how this works, right? The next generation is going to tear down your monument. <laughs> they're going to rename the road. They're, they're probably going to tear down the building they named after you as well, right? I mean, your legacy really doesn't live long, even though we really try. You know, see, people, they're looking for that five minutes of fame, even if they got to do something crazy or evil, I mean, think about it. the guy who killed the Beatle, John Lennon. His name is Mark David Chapman. In an interview, they asked him why, and he said, I wanted a piece of his fame. In his parole board, he says, I couldn't resist the notoriety. See, people want to live on, even if it's for a negative legacy. It's crazy, isn't it? Legacy really doesn't last. What else? Well, we try to live on in our family. We think, okay, surely my family will have these good memories of me after I'm gone. Sort of like that Disney song, remember me, though I have to say goodbye, remember me, right? But, you know, think about it. Does our family really remember us long after we're gone? I mean, can any of you, do you even know the names of your great-great-grandparents? I don't. And if you do know their names, do you really know anything about them? Even the people that love you the most... You know what? Once you're gone, you're sort of eventually forgotten. You see, life is fleeting and death is coming. And so how do people handle death when they don't believe that there's an afterlife? Well, they get depressed. They really don't have hope or meaning and purpose in this life. Check out this quote from one atheist who had a very candid moment. And look at what he said. He said, depression is a serious problem in the greater atheistic community. And far too often that depression has led to suicide. This is something many of my fellow atheists don't like to admit, but it's true. And yet the opposite is also true. A recent study that came out from Harvard University said that people that are involved in religious services like us, that believe in an afterlife, that they have hope. 
They have meaning in this life and purpose in this life. They have greater joy. They, they have less depression and less suicide. Why? Because they believe there's purpose in life and in, in death. And so God's put eternity in our heart. We want to live on in some way, right? Well, if we live on after we die, how do we do that? Well, we live on through our soul. So jot that down. Second thing I want you to think about is having a soul implies an afterlife. If you really do have a soul, that means you will have some type of afterlife. Now, the Bible talks about you having a soul quite often. Over a hundred times, it mentions the soul in the Bible. Look at how Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says this, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus is saying, your soul is more valuable than anything else this world can give you. You see, the reality is, is that we try to live our lives and we put so much worth and value in our identity or our education or our house or our legacy or whatever it may be. And can I just tell you, in the next life, it's worthless. All the things that you think are so important right now have zero worth in the next life. Jesus said, why in the world would you want to forfeit your soul? You, you can't even bargain about that. And, and so you go, okay, well, what exactly happens then? Well, when we die, our body goes in the ground, right? And our soul ascends. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul said this, when we're absent from the body, we are then present with the Lord. Our soul ascends to God's presence. I mean, Jesus, you remember whenever he was on the cross and you had this repentant thief next to him? And that repentant thief on the cross confesses Jesus as his king. And Jesus said what? Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And they both eventually die. And you go, wait a minute. Their bodies are hanging on those crosses. Their bodies are dead. And yet Jesus said, you're going to be with me in the next realm in paradise. And so what happens, okay? It's really two phases in, in the afterlife. First, we call it the intermediate stage. That if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your body dies, and you go into the presence of God, it's called paradise. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, your body dies, and your soul goes to Hades. And it remains there until Jesus Christ comes again. And whenever Jesus Christ comes again to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, the Bible says he's going to set everything that's wrong, he's going to make it right, and then we're going to have resurrected bodies. And our soul is going to be reunited with a new resurrected body. We'll go through the judgment, and then we will spend eternity either in heaven with the Lord or in hell away from the Lord. That's what the Bible predicts. Now, there are people in our life that will push back on that. And they'll say, no, 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 no. Neuroscientists have mapped the brain. And through their mapping of the brain, they have identified all of our emotions and all the kind of things, all the things that we think are the, the conscience or our mind or our soul. You know what? That's just, just our brain. Well, another neuroscientist, this lady right here, Cambridge University neurologist Sharon Dirks, wrote a book called Am I Just My Brain? And she said, based on all the research, the answer is no. <laughs> she says this, the brain can't explain our consciousness. We have a soul in which we have a mind, will, and emotions. It's our soul that makes these volitional choices. It has desires and perceptions. 
Scientists can measure the electric activity of the brain, but they can't measure what's actually going on in your mind. In other words, the physical brain itself isn't enough to explain our mind and consciousness. Your soul is distinct from your physical brain. Let me explain it like this. We we probably, most of you here, have a computer. You know what a computer is, right? So you got a computer. And let's just say that the computer represents your brain. And in that computer, you got, you know, your circuitry and processors and motherboard and, and you got the power supply and your brain has all that intricate wiring, okay? So it's like a computer. But then besides the computer, what else do you have? You got this thing called the cloud, right? The cloud. And so just like I pay 99 cents a month to store all of my Apple devices on the cloud, right? And so, but it's two distinct things, isn't it? And what happens? Well, guess what? Your computer can crash and die, and yet your memory lives on in the cloud, right? Well, that's the difference between your brain versus your soul. You see, throughout human civilization, everyone has believed until just recently that you have a soul. Whether it's philosophers of Plato or Socrates or Aristotle, obviously Jesus said you've got a soul. Look at what Jesus said, Matthew 10. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so there is an afterlife. We want to live on. There's an afterlife. How do we live on? It's through our soul. But then the question is, well, what exactly is the afterlife going to be like? And so let's answer this third question. Jot this on your outline. Do near-death experiences substantiate an afterlife? Do near-death experiences substantiate an afterlife? Now, to be honest with you, I've always been a little suspect of these experiences, these near-death experiences. But you see, we've had people in our church, people that I know and love and trust. I mean, in fact, one one guy from our church, a member, who just had a near-death experience last month. And I'll tell you, it radically changed his life. It's very real. And so you go, well, well, what's going on there? Well, Jesus actually gives us a story of two individuals who die. It's called the rich man and Lazarus. And we actually see their conversation after they die. They have consciousness and memory in the next world. Check it out. Look at it. It's found in Luke chapter 16. The rich man says, I beg you, Father, he's talking to Abraham, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And so Jesus is talking about, here's a very conscious conversation that's happening between two dead men in the spiritual realm in their souls, okay? And so you go, all right, well, do near-death experiences give us a little glimpse of what at least the first part of the afterlife is going to be like? As I've already stated, I've been a little skeptical, and part of the reason why is because there's been people who've claimed to have these experiences, and then they write books and sell books, and then they later on admit, oh, I just made all that stuff up. But as I was researching for this, and obviously in this book, Case for Heaven, there's a lot of research in this, um, I discovered that there's over 900 scholarly articles written about near-death experiences over the past 40 years. That many of them have been printed in respected science and medical journals. This is a well-investigated phenomenon. And so you go, exactly, what, what, are, what are they? Well, a person dies, right? Literally, no brain waves, no heartbeat. Um, some people are even taken to the morgue. And then what happens? There's this separation between the body and the soul. 
and they sort of float out of their body and they see what's going on in the, you know, the medical room and stuff like that. And then what happens? Well, you know, they often will go through a long, dark hallway. Some of them will meet dead loved ones. Some of them will have a life review, almost like a judgment time. Um, and then many of them will see this bright light and some of them will see Jesus. And most of them will claim that they're, they're, they're sent back. You go, well, how do you substantiate these kind of things? I mean, there's, there's thousands of people that have had these kind of things. How do you substantiate them? Well, if, if there's experiences that they had in this near-death experience that you could verify, well, maybe that could verify this as being true. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Um, researcher Kimberly Clark Sharp um, described an event of Maria. She had a heart attack, and she literally, uh, she went brain dead, no heart beat. She flatlined. She said her spirit, you know, separated from her body, and um, she had a very vivid um, experience. She was watching the medical team try to revive her. She floats up through that ceiling and then through another ceiling all the way through the, um, through the hospital, and then, whoop, she comes back. And she tells the medical team what she just experienced. And they were really skeptical. Like, I, I don't think so. And she goes, well, I'll prove it. On the third floor ledge, there is a man's blue tennis shoe. It's there on the ledge. It's just right there. It's the left foot. It's got a little wear on the left side, and the shoestring is underneath it. Two men went up there and verified exactly what she'd experienced. Let me give you another example. Um, Pamela Reynolds, 35-year-old mother from Atlanta, she um, had a brain aneurysm. They tried to rescue her and save her. And so they literally, in surgery, they drained her brain of all the blood. No blood, no brain activity. She has this vivid near-death experience. She saw the medical team working on her. She said that um, she went through this long tunnel, saw a deceased loved one, um, and then saw God and God sent her back. And, and then again, the medical team was very skeptical. And she said, well, I can point out, I can show you exactly what drill you used to drill into my skull. And I can show you another medical device that you used that has a dent on it. And she told of all these different conversations that happened in multiple rooms in the hospital. And then she said, and y'all were playing Hotel California while you're operating on me. Okay. And they were, they were a little amazed. But those stories aren't unique. Um, one researcher looked at 93 patients that had these kind of verifiable observations, and he confirmed 92% of them exactly as they saw them. What I found remarkable is blind people that have these experiences. There's a study of 21 blind people that whenever they had these near-death experiences, they could see. Vicky, who was born blind was 26 years old, involved in a car accident with her family. She, it was a terrible accident. She went into a coma, was in the hospital. She had this near-death experience, and then she could vividly see. She could see the doctors. She saw the hospital. She saw trees, sky, birds, things she'd never seen before. She goes and sees a deceased loved one that she knew but had never met before. She comes back and describes everything that she experienced, and it just blew them away because it sounds like she could actually see. And when she came back to her body, she was blind again. I don't know how to explain all those kind of experiences. Uh, there is one pastor in um, Austin, Texas, John Burke, Gateway Church in Austin. He, he um, wrote a book called Imagine Heaven. 
He researched did interviews of over a thousand of, of these individuals that had experiences like that. And he says, I don't base my belief in heaven based on those experiences. But after seeing and hearing all these stories, it's given me a little enhanced view of what the next life's going to be like. Listen to how he describes heaven. Check this out. In the over a thousand near-death experiences I've studied, it's this incredible picture of how when we die, we leave our natural bodies, but we're still ourselves. We have spiritual bodies and not with five senses, more like 50 senses. It, it's, it's life on steroids. It's life beyond anything we've experienced. The colors that people talk about are the color spectrum is far beyond Earth, but that's what you would expect because the color spectrum of Earth is the color spectrum of the sun, but the color spectrum of heaven is the color spectrum of God. There's this great welcoming committee of people who have passed on before them who are there to welcome them. And Jesus said, use your earthly resources you know, to make friends so that when you die, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. It's going to be life and beauty, not unlike earth. You know, there are mountains and flowers and trees and streams and all of that's talked about in the book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation. And that's exactly what near-death experiencers talk about, except they experience it in expanded dimensions of, of space, more than three dimensions of space. And more dimensions of time, just like it says in the Bible. The greatest experience on earth is, is just like a tiny taste compared to the feast that I believe God has prepared for us. And I can't wait to discover all these new things. I mean, imagine a universe of billions of stars and planets that we thought were beyond our reach, but what if in a thought we can go explore them? Endless endless exploration. The reality is, is that the, even though the Bible paints different pictures of heaven for us, we really can't comprehend it. There's not enough earthly terms to describe what heaven is like. In fact, notice how the Apostle Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even imagine how amazing heaven is. Now, so far, I've shared these different evidences, and you may push back and say, well, I'm not really sure. I'm a little skeptical about these near-death experiences, or, or maybe you're not. I'm not completely sure we've got a soul or not. But you know, can I just tell you this final evidence, it's hard to argue with, and it's this. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, jot that on your outline. Jesus' resurrection proves an afterlife. Jesus' resurrection proves an afterlife. Think of it. If there was a man who predicted in detail exactly how he was going to die, and then he predicted that three days later he would rise again, and it happened exactly as he predicted, do you think he would be the authority on the afterlife? Absolutely. Well, that's exactly what happened in Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the best attested to events in the ancient world. There's been a number of atheists and agnostics that through the years have doubted the existence or the resurrection of Jesus Christ who investigate the truth, the historicity of it, and they come to the conclusion, wow, he really was risen from the dead. You go, know, like, what evidences? Well, let me just give you a couple. One is the empty tomb, right? I mean, everybody knows, everybody agrees that Jesus was crucified and that he was buried, but then what happened? The body's gone. 
Check it out. Look at it. Luke chapter 24, verse 2 says this. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, I've toured the Holy Land. I have peered into that tomb, and I got good news for you. It's still empty, right? It's, after 2,000 years, that tomb is still empty. Now, think about this. The Romans and the religious leaders, they hated Christ. They crucified him. They hated Christianity. All they had to do to stop the church in its tracks is to produce a body. All they had to do is say, here's the body, here's the bones of Jesus. That's all they had to do, and the church would have never gotten started. But they couldn't. Why? Because the body was gone. Jesus had risen from the dead. Another great evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ are the many different witnesses that saw him alive. In fact, Luke says in the beginning of Acts that we have this infallible proof that Jesus showed himself alive for 40 days. And it wasn't just a few hysterical, you know, women or fervent disciples. No, it was a bunch of people at different times and places. I mean, some were individuals, some were just a few, some were a small group. Some was a large group, as many as 500 people. In fact, notice how the Apostle Paul describes the encounters people had with Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul wrote this just 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. So this is just two decades after the resurrection. Paul writes this. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Basically, he's saying, you don't believe me? Go talk to them. They're still alive. They can tell you about it. Then he appeared to James, who was a skeptic. Then he also appeared to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. Who? Saul of Tarsus. Saul, who was persecuting the church and killing Christians and hating Jesus Christ, when he met the resurrected Jesus Christ, his life was transformed. He went from Saul to Paul, the apostle. And what's amazing about all these witnesses is that they gave their life testifying that Jesus Christ is alive, that many of these witnesses experienced torture and death and crucifixion. I love the way that Blaise Pascal once put it. He said this, I tend to believe those witnesses who get their throats cut, right? I mean, think about that. You would think at some point, one of these disciples in a weak moment when they're being tortured, when they're being crucified, would say, no, 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 we made it all up. It's a con. It's not real. But none of them, not one of them recanted. Why? Because they all knew it was true. They had seen Jesus. They looked at him in the eyes. They had a meal with him. They had talked with him. They had touched him. They'd had a conversation and heard him speak. They knew Jesus Christ was alive. Can I just tell you, folks, the evidence points that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. You don't have to believe me. I'm not a lawyer, but let me give you the word of the most successful trial lawyer in the world. His name is Sir Lionel Lucku. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records, the most successful lawyer in the world. He um, was knighted twice. He served on the Supreme Court of his um, nation's um, Supreme Court. And um, he was a skeptic. He didn't really believe in Christ. He didn't believe in the resurrection. But then he decided, you know what, I'm going to investigate it. I'm going to investigate the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and take all my legal knowledge and see if this is really authentic and true. And so he begins to investigate. He takes three years to do it. And what was his conclusion? Look at his quote. He says this. I say unequivocally 
that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Folks, Jesus Christ has been risen from the grave. And because of that, he is the ultimate authority on the afterlife. And so what does Jesus say about the afterlife? Well, check it out. Look at it. John chapter 11. Jesus said, I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you hear that? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, death is not the end, folks. Death is just a doorway into another plane of existence. We move from this life to eternal life at the moment of death. That's what Jesus says. Now you go, okay, what's it going to be like? Well, Jesus gives us a little glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. Jesus calls going home, going to heaven as though we're going home. Look at it. I love this passage. John chapter 14. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Jesus said, going to heaven is like going home. Is there anything better than going home, right? I mean, basically, in those times that you've been traveling, you've been away from home for a long time, you've been sleeping on borrowed beds and living out of a suitcase, it's just so amazing to uh, go home, right? I could remember whenever I was, went off to college, I was away from home for over a year, and then I finally made it back home. My mom greeted me, made me my favorite meal. My family and friends, they came over. We talked till midnight, got to sleep in my old bed. There's nothing like going back home. Jesus said, going to heaven's like going home. Friends, let me remind you, this is not home. This life right now, it is a short little blip in the scale of eternity. This is not home. Heaven is going to be home. You go, okay, well, what's it going to be like? Well, there's another passage in, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, that's describes like this. It says, God himself will dwell among them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. No more sorrow, no more pain. All the former things are all done away. And he who sits on the throne says, behold, I'm making all things new. Folks, that's what heaven's going to be like. And it's going to be amazing. You see, one of the best news I can give you today is that heaven is for real. Hard news to give you, but Jesus said it, hell is real as well. But the best news of all is that Jesus Christ came to take your hell so that he could take you to heaven. You see, that's the gospel. God loves you with an everlasting love. And yet we've sinned against a holy God. We think that we're God. We can do our own thing. We can go our own way. We've sinned against the holy God and our sin has separated us from God. And so what does God do? Because of his great love, he sends his only son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that you and I could never live. And then Jesus died the death that we all deserve to die. He died on the cross in our place and for our sin. And to prove it, God raised him up from the dead so that right now, Jesus offers you eternal life. You go, how? If you will repent, 
turn from yourself and your sin and you say, Jesus, I surrender to you as my Lord. I, I surrender all. I give my life to you, Jesus. In that moment of faith, the Bible says he will forgive you. you go, How do you do that? Through prayer. Look at this passage. In Romans chapter 10, it says this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what? You can take all the guessing out of eternity right now. How? By personally making a decision to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. If you're ready today to turn from yourself and say, Jesus, you're now going to be my Lord. I surrender to you. In that moment of faith, the Bible says he will forgive you and promise you eternity in heaven. I want to give you that opportunity. And so I want everyone here to bow your head and close your eyes. If you bow your head and close your eyes, and in your heart of hearts, you know it's time. You know you need to make this decision. And I'm going to pray a prayer out loud, but I just encourage you to pray this prayer with me from your heart. Don't pray it unless you really mean it. But if you do, I want you to pray with me. Would you pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I know that I've sinned against you. I turn from myself and my sins, and I turn to you. Please forgive me. Please come into my life and be my Lord. From this day forward, I choose to follow you first, and I will trust you to take me home to heaven when I die. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I know that many of you prayed that prayer with me, and I'm so thankful for that. And we want to encourage you if you've made a decision like that. Hopefully earlier in the service, you, you had this little tear-off portion here. Maybe you filled it out. If you haven't, it's not too late. If you prayed that prayer with me, I'd encourage you. Would you just check that first box there? I prayed receive Christ, my Lord and Savior. Today, I prayed that. And then just put the information there. Or maybe you've already received Christ, but you would check that second box. You know what? I'm recommitting my life to Christ. I've been living for this world. I really need to be living for Christ. And you know what? You maybe need to check that. I mean, whatever decision you've made, would you just put that information down here? We want to encourage. We're not going to bombard you, but we want to encourage you in your growth and in your faith. And whenever you leave here, there's going to be ushers at every door, and you can drop this in one of the baskets as you leave. And that way we can follow up and encourage you so that you can grow in your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a sermon series called The Seven Commands of Christ. Jesus gave dozens of commands and as followers of Jesus, we should obey all of them. Over the next several weeks, we are focusing on seven that will change your life. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or you can attend online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. You know, there's so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing here at Silverdale. And we really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on the different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, we appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.